You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. My name is Haley. I have the privilege of serving on staff as our youth ministry coordinator. And today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Mark 11, 1 through 11 from the NIV. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. This is God's word. Thank you, Haley. If you have your Bibles open, it would be great if you could keep them open. For today, we're not only gonna look at verses one through 11, which we just had read, but also the paragraphs following it. Why? Because together, they give us a better understanding, not only of what Palm Sunday is about, but how we are to respond. So let's pray together and let's invite the Spirit of God, to speak to us today. Heavenly Father, I thank you that everyone in this room matters to you. People joining us online, we thank you so much that you have made a way through your son Jesus for us to know you. And as a result, you've called us to welcome you into our hearts. So we ask this morning that you would show us what it means for us to welcome you into our lives as our king. I pray that we would respond in accordance with your word and that we would be changed as a result. I pray that nothing would hinder us from receiving you and being changed by you. We ask this together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. It's a common statement that maybe you've heard or perhaps you've even said yourself. I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. You've heard it, maybe you've said it. And I I, I understand in in many ways where that's coming from. For the, the church, Christians often don't reflect what the Bible says. The church is often full of 
contradiction and hypocrisy. I understand. But whenever I hear that, I often want to offer a follow-up question. But do you really like Jesus? Or are you being selective about what you like about Jesus? This is an important question, not only for those who are not yet Christians, but also for those who are. There are many reasons why the church is not what the church should be today, but one of those reasons is because even Christians get selective when it comes to Jesus. We cherry pick the parts about Jesus that we like, and we avoid the parts that we don't like. As a result, we get a caricature, a parody of Jesus that you often hear spoken about even in modern culture. There's conservative Jesus, and there's progressive Jesus. There's a pacifist Jesus, there's a militant Jesus. There's guru Jesus, and there's self-help Jesus. There's Republican Jesus, and there's Democrat Jesus. You guys get the idea. As a result of this selectivity, Ross Dothit, an author, he wrote a book called Bad Religion about this, and he says, as a result, the Jesus of the New Testament, whose paradoxical mix of qualities and commandments presents a challenge to every ideology and faction, has been replaced in the hearts and minds of many with a more congenial figure, a Choose your own Jesus, who better fits their own preconceptions about what a savior should and shouldn't be. The reason why this is important to recognize, friends, is that a Jesus of your own making cannot save you. A Jesus of your own making cannot change you. We must understand who Jesus truly is and respond accordingly. And that is what I find both interesting and important about Palm Sunday. The series of events over 48 hours just before Easter summarizes what is shown throughout all the Gospels about Jesus. This combination of traits that you would never see in one person that's important for everyone to understand and recognize. If you're not a Christian, you need to understand who Jesus actually is if you're going to trust in him as your savior. But also for the church, this is important for your own growth. How do you know that Jesus is, is changing you? Well, you begin to see the same combination of traits that are in Jesus becoming a part of you. And that's what we find here in Mark chapter 11. We're not only gonna look at verses one through 11 of Palm Sunday, but as I said, even the events after it, because it gives us a, a portrait of those traits that we often cherry pick, and yet they're all brought together here. And it is vital that we do, because we need to be reminded on Palm Sunday that the same crowd that praised him on one day was the same crowd that called to kill him on another day. So what I want us to think about is who are we welcoming and how are we to welcome him? The first point is this, who are we welcoming? 
we welcome the lowly king. We are welcoming a lowly, humble king. The striking thing about the words that we just heard from Mark 11 is that Jesus is absolutely in control. Even the directions of go get the, the donkey and tell him the Lord has need of it, all of that. What we've just read actually fulfills very specific prophecies made hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. Prophecies that a king would come to Israel and save not only them, but actually bring salvation to the world. Prophecies so specific that they even detail his arrival into the holy city of Jerusalem. The Old Testament book of Zechariah gives us a snapshot in chapter nine, verse nine. Look at how specific it is, and notice the nature of this prophecy. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See. Your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. If you grew up in Israel, you were familiar with this idea that, hey, even though we're, we're under the oppressive reign of the Roman government and we are not the people that we should be someday, the Old Testament promised, we're gonna have a king, and he's not gonna walk into Jerusalem, he's gonna ride into Jerusalem. Why? Because riding into Jerusalem was none other than a claim to be king. And that's why all the people there in Mark 11, 1 to 11, they start waving palm branches, which in ancient Israel, those were symbols of victory. Like today, we might be waving a flag for a country. These were symbols of victory. And then they throw their robes on the ground. Why? The casting of your, your, your robes was both a sign of reverence on the one hand, but it was also a sign of your willingness for this king to have everything. When you threw your robe down, you were saying, hey, everything I have, use it. Now, if that sounds strange to you, imagine for a moment that you have been living in a war-torn country for years. It's been ravaged. The enemy has seized your homeland. But then one day, the liberating army that's pushing back these enemies comes into your town. And the military is coming through your town and they're your liberators and you're like, hey, Come on in. Do you, do you need to come into my home? What do you need? You're here to liberate. So everything that I have is yours. Take it. I'm in full support of the liberation that you're bringing. That's the idea. They're like, here's the king. We've heard about this Jesus. He's doing miracles. We believe he's the promised one that the scriptures tell us to look for. So here's my robe. Like, it's not only a sign of reverence, but also a willingness for him to have everything. And they shout, Hosanna, which simply means save now. Save us. So this picture is beautiful. He comes as Messiah. The people acknowledge this. But the manner in which he comes is surprising. He does not come on a majestic horse demonstrating his might, 
but on a lowly donkey demonstrating his humility. There's a paradox there. Yes, he has come to bring salvation, but perhaps not the kind that the people had imagined. They were expecting him to come and overthrow the foreigners and release them from the oppression of Rome. And yet he comes in a lowly manner. He comes in a way that's not overwhelming with might or power. In fact, one commentator says, he comes at eye level. That's the thing about riding a donkey, it's smaller. I don't know if you know that. I'm not an expert. <laughs> I know they're smaller than horses. If you're riding on a horse, everyone can see you, the crowd, like, oh, there they are, high and mighty. And yet he comes on a donkey. He comes down to the level of the people. To put it another way, he comes in a way that we can choose. He comes in a way that we can choose. And that is key because the real change that needs to happen was not merely outside, but it was inside. The change needed to happen within them. The change needs to happen within us. His lowly entry as a king on that day points to a different kind of triumph than the one that people had envisioned. And yet, because he came in this lowly state, it would be more powerful than anything the Roman Empire could ever create. Even famous historic leaders have recognized this. This quote from Napoleon is telling and famous. He said, I tell you, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself, I love that he threw himself in there, by the way, have founded great empires, but our empires were founded on force. Jesus alone founded his empire on love, and to this day, millions would die for him. What do we welcome on Palm Sunday? A lowly king. And this is beautiful because his humble entrance demonstrates the uniqueness of Christianity. Notice the phrase, the king comes to you. See, in all other religions, you have to go to God. You have to work your way to God. You have to climb the ladder to God. But in Christianity, the king comes to you. In what manner does the king come? Does he come with overwhelming might so that you have no choice but to bend the knee? No, he comes lowly so that you can choose. We cannot reach God. He reaches down to us. He comes in at eye level. So will we respond? See, this displays, friends, his compassion, that he would lower himself for people. See, here's a practical reason why it is so important that you get Jesus right. If you only believe in the might of God, but not the compassion of God, guess what? Then you will be high and mighty yourself. The way in which you live the Christian life will be like on your high horse, as it were. <laughs> willing that all should just bend the knee. What does triumph look like to you? There are many Christians who come in with, a, with an arrogance 
a triumphalistic attitude, we might say, because they've forgotten the humility and compassion and lowliness of the very king that we serve. Who do we welcome on Palm Sunday? We welcome the lowly king, full of compassion, willing to lower himself and to come down to our level. This is powerful. Do you know the lowly king? Have you welcomed him into your heart? Do you see his compassion for you? But it doesn't end there. This is a glorious moment, and yet all this excitement ends in kind of an anticlimactic way. Verse 11 says that he, you know, this triumphal entry, there's the palm branches and the robes, and he rides in, and he looks at the tempo, and he leaves. And if I was a producer, which I'm not, the camera would pull back and the sun would set. <laughs> You'd be like, what happens next? We're meant to read on. There's more here than might first appear. This quiet moment sets the stage for what's going to happen after Palm Sunday. This is a day that everyone in Israel should have been expecting. To quote one of the Old Testament prophets again, they should have known what to expect. Malachi chapter three, verses one to two. Speaking of the coming of the Lord, this Messiah, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire. You read that and you think, wait a minute, I like the donkey. That's a cool vibe. Like, yeah, just do the, do the thing, the lowly donkey thing. But if they went back and looked at the Old Testament, they say, wait a minute. What's he gonna do when he comes? He comes to the temple. But he doesn't come like a tourist. Nor does Jesus come to offer a sacrifice. Why does Jesus go into the temple right after Palm Sunday? He has come to inspect the temple. Because who we welcome on Palm Sunday is not only a lowly king, but the second heading is this. We welcome the righteous judge. Whatever your vision of Jesus is, you need to know that he's a lowly king, but he is also the righteous judge. He's come to examine the temple, and what will his examination reveal? Well, as he heads his way there, what seems like a random moment on the way with his disciples is actually connected to the Palm Sunday account. So on their way, they're walking there, and he curses a fig tree, verses 12 through 14. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now you read this, first it's Palm Sunday, and you're like, oh, the, the donkey. And then he curses this fig tree, and you're like, is he grumpy? Was he like happy one day, you know, and then the next day he's just angry? Like, why has he got to curse a little tree? And those of you plant people in their room, you're like, I don't know how I feel about this. Well, and you're like, I don't understand that. We'll get there in a moment, but it gets more intense. He then enters the temple, and he starts turning over tables. 
Verse 15 to 18, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Now, what's going on here? Why is it important for us? And how is this connected to welcoming him on Palm Sunday? Let's think about this for a moment. Why does he go into the temple and start turning over tables? Well, first you must understand what the temple is for, and then what the crowd is doing in the temple. If you go back to the beginning of the Bible, God created the garden as a meeting place, a temple, that's what a temple is, where God could be with man. But mankind rebelled against God in sin and was put out of the garden, guarded by sword, representing the penalty of sin, which is death. There's no way back to the presence of God without perfect justice done on sin. But in God's mercy, he allowed for there to be a temple among people where sacrifices were made in order to have access to God. And when the animals died, the people would say, the animal died so that I would not have to, so that I could have access to God. So what we see is here, these temple courts, they're filled with visitors, people who want to know and meet with God. But the price has to be paid. And so you have this commercial enterprise where animals were sold to travelers so that sacrifices could be made to atone for sin. So why does Jesus turn over the tables? Why does Jesus stop the sacrifices and drive them out? Well, there are several reasons, and this is key. On the one hand, many believe that Jesus is protesting because the temple has become a commercial and crooked business with these people making profit off of the visitors when they purchased their animals. And indeed, they did make a profit. Isn't that why Jesus says in verse 17, you've made this into a den of robbers? There was commerce, but there wasn't communion. And often people in Christianity, they hijack the church and they only use what they can in Jesus' name for profit. And that must be condemned. And this is certainly one of the reasons why Jesus is overturning tables on this day. But I would like to suggest that there's a deeper, more profound reason with a much broader application. Think about the phrase, den of robbers. 
I never understood this for years until the, the commentaries brought it to my light. The reference to den of robbers does not refer to a place where thieves do their robbing. It's a reference to the place where they hide out after they do their robbing. It's a quote from Jeremiah 7. It's a place where thieves, they go out and they rob people and then they go back to their den, the very place they think that they can escape justice. To call the temple a robber's den is not primarily an outrage against dishonest business. Jesus says, you've turned the temple into a hideout where people think they can go outside and they can live their lives in any way that they want to live. They can, they can sin and they can live for themselves and they just step inside the temple where they think that they can escape justice. The religious leaders were using religious activities as a cover for their sins. A den of robbers is not where robbers do their thieving. It's where they hide out after they've done it. This explains Jesus' attitude towards the tree. The plant people are like, you still haven't explained the tree. See, the fig tree is a symbol of Israel. The leaves represented activity and even busyness. There's stuff happening in the temple and its leaders, yet like the tree, it did not bear fruit. It was diseased, it was barren. So the temple and the tree have a lot in common. On the surface, they are both active, but neither are bearing fruit. And so both are condemned by Jesus. The leaves on the tree with all its promise of fruit was as barren and deceptive as a busy temple with all of its activity but the roots were not right, and so the fruit was not there. Friends, this passage is a warning, a sobering warning. Jesus is not only the lowly king who is moved with compassion to humble himself and come down to our level, he is also the righteous judge who will expose hypocrisy in our own lives. For it is also true that today, there are even many of us who we go out and we, we sin and we do whatever we want and we live our lives in our own way according to our own standard. The message of our culture tells us to do whatever pleases us and then we, we show up to a church service or we're given an offering or, or we say a prayer thinking that mere religious observance will exempt us from the righteous examination of God. We think, oh, I did my religious duty. I, I did that thing, so therefore it kind of counterbalances, right? The den of robbers is the place People think that they can escape conviction. It's hypocrisy. And oftentimes even those in the church treat 
the gathering in that way, treat prayer in that way. But Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of religiosity. He's openly rebuking the leaders for placing a false trust in religious observance. The sacrifices in the temple will not protect you from the penalty of sin. And in the same way today, just mere ticking the religious box will not protect you against the penalty of sin. See, this is a warning against a hollow religiosity. I've spoken with many who, they just kind of live their lives, whatever, but they're like, oh, but I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to church on Easter and Christmas, so I'm, I'm good. I went through catechism when I was young, so I'm, it's all good. Or I hear this often, my grandfather was an Episcopalian minister, so we're good, right? I'm like, yeah, that literally has nothing to do with your personal decision to follow Jesus. Why does Jesus come in and give this verdict? Because he's the righteous judge. See, now we see two traits in Jesus. We see that he's the lowly king and he's the righteous judge. Now, people who are high and mighty, they don't like to deal with the Jesus who is meek and lowly. But the people who like Jesus who is meek and lowly, they don't like Jesus as the judge. See, some of you like Jesus meek and mild. Well, here you have Jesus meek and wild. You know, just flip the, the M upside down. It's like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. He's gonna call me out on my sin? No, I like, I like donkey Jesus. I like Jesus where I just picture him like cruising, like at a slow pace, and you know, I see him in the crowd, and he's like, hey. I like that Jesus. I don't like the Jesus who convicts me of my sin. I don't like the Jesus who exposes my hypocrisy. Oh, yeah. Ugh. See, this is where we are so tempted to, to pick and to choose. And there are many today who they'll pick parts of Jesus that, that seem more aligned with their sensibilities and then they leave out all the rest. We're not allowed to do that. He is the lowly king. He is also the righteous judge who exposes sin. Friends, if we leave out the parts about Jesus that we don't like, we don't have the gospel. And though this might be hard to, to hear and, and see, we need to understand that his righteous anger is not a contradiction of his love, it is an expression of his love. If wrong and injustice is being done and someone doesn't have a righteous anger over it, you wouldn't say they love too much, you would say they're not loving at all. He knows the purpose of what all these things, the temple was meant to point towards and yet the people had turned away. And in many ways, this is a picture of us all. We need Jesus, the righteous judge, to come in and to examine, to tell us where it is that we're hiding from him, avoiding or refusing or resisting his conviction. He's the lowly king, but he's also the righteous judge. Are you allowing him to examine you? And to say to King Jesus, Jesus, examine me. Is there any wrong way in me? 
Is there any way in which I am playing the fool? Is there any way in which I am playing the hypocrite? Is there any way that I'm just hiding under some religious activity? Now, when we read that, we might expect, well, does it end there? Because if it ends there, that's pretty sobering. There doesn't seem to be much hope. But the good news, friends, is it doesn't end there. After his lowly entrance and then his radical assessment of sin, he then makes the most surprising invitation to those who choose to follow him. And in that, we see that Jesus is not only the lowly king, the righteous judge, he is a gracious savior. He is a gracious savior, and we must welcome him. The end of the passage, if we read on, is actually an invitation from Jesus which reveals his character and his purpose and informs how we should respond to him on Palm Sunday and on every day. As the disciples were thinking over this, like, okay, people are waving palm branches and the one moment welcoming him, then he's turning over tables. Like, what do we do with all that? Verse 20 to 25, in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Peter, by the way, is always Captain Obvious. I love it in, in the Gospels. <laughs> Have faith in God. Jesus answered. Do you see how radical that statement would be after a day when Jesus is flipping over tables and saying, none of this religious activity can ever rid you of your sin. And then Peter's like, hey, what does all this mean? And he says, have faith in God. Like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. Verse 23, truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Notice the gracious invitation to access the presence and power of God in that paragraph. So he enters as the lowly king not quite the triumphal victor that everyone had expected, so meek and lowly and full of compassion. He then goes into the temple. He flips over the tables. He pushes everyone out saying, stop your religious observance. He's exposing the sin of hypocrisy, and then he immediately invites them to trust in him and access his presence and power. All at the same time. This is Jesus, people. This is Jesus. So how do we make sense of what he's saying, and how do we respond? Well, if we're going to escape hypocrisy and judgment and fruitlessness, we listen to what Jesus says. Believe, pray, and forgive. First, he says, believe, have faith in God, meaning access to God is by faith, not by works. That's how we begin to make sense of all these traits together, like, Oh, okay, he's flipping over the table saying there's no way that mere human and religious observance can ever earn me favor with God and forgiveness of my sin. The answer is faith. I am saved by faith, not by works. 
The reason that Mark tells the story of the tree and the temple is to show that Jesus must be at the center and the root of our life. He is to be the object of our faith, not trusting in our ability, but in his ability. And when you trust in him, he brings the power and presence of God into your life by the Holy Spirit. And as a result, we can expect from him what we could never expect from anyone else, even moving mountains. Believe, trust in him, and pray. Ask in prayer. Because they would have gotten the impression, well, you just turned over the temple table, so I don't think I can come in and like pray to you. And Jesus is like, pray, pray. True faith is expressed in prayer. But remember, our quest, request flows from what we believe about him. So don't misunderstand Jesus. Prayer is not a blank check for you to build your own kingdom, but a free invitation for you to ask him that his kingdom would come in your life. That's also what it means to pray in Jesus' name. It's not a little magic trick you get to like add on to the end so that you, God is forced to give you what you want. God, I want like a, you know, I want this car, I want this raise, and you gotta do it in Jesus' name, amen. And the angel's like, he got you. She got you. They said the little thing at the end now, and God's like, well, I guess I have to do it and pray it in Jesus' name. To pray in Jesus' name means to pray in accordance with his character. So we would never ask, hey, Jesus, make it easy for me to sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is like, oh, great, now I'm gonna make it easy for you to sin. No. To pray in Jesus' name is to pray in accordance with his character. It's an expression that our faith rests not in our will, but in his will. And that is why, friends, you can have remarkable confidence in prayer. He even refers to, in verse 25, standing in prayer, which refers to this incredible confidence that you can have in God's presence. And as a result, be sure that you forgive. A statement that at first sounds conditional, but we need to understand what he's saying here, not only in this context, but in the rest of what he said about forgiveness. Jesus is saying the same reason you should forgive is because God forgives. And therefore, to refuse to forgive other people is to refuse the forgiveness of God. You're sawing off the very branch that you're sitting on, as it were. Forgive because God forgives you. This gracious invitation. How do we put all this together? He's lowly, he comes to our level because of compassion. He's righteous, he examines and he exposes our sin. He blows our cover. He doesn't just let us get away with it or just give us a little wink at, at sin. And yet he also invites us to come freely. How does all of this fit together? How could Jesus say all of this to sinners like us? Well, it is because he is offering what the temple was always intended to provide. A relationship with God, access to God, and forgiveness from God. Because friends, the day after Palm Sunday, Jesus was not merely cleansing the temple, he was replacing the temple. 
He was replacing the temple. The temple was a symbol of the atoning work that needed to happen for us to be brought to God. Jesus brings the reality. Jesus is the true and final temple through what he would accomplish through laying down his life as a once and for all sacrifice for our sin. All of us can come and have full forgiveness and access to God forever and approach him with confidence because we are adopted by him. That is why the New Testament says in the book of Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12, with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves or anything else you could have purchased in that temple, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. That is what Jesus was doing on that day. He's saying, I'm flipping over these tables. I'm coming to you in humility, and I'm inviting you to come and experience my presence and my power. Why? Because I'm gonna lay down my life for you, he says. I'm gonna die on a cross for you, he says. I'm gonna perform what the temple was always pointing towards and what all this religious activity could never secure your forgiveness and your salvation forever. This is Jesus. And what we celebrate is the fact that he laid aside his robe to lower himself for us and offer his life as a sacrifice. He went under the sword of judgment that our sin deserves so that we would not have to. And that is why we can be so confident and yet humble at the same time. So how do we welcome him today? Believe. Trust him. If you're not yet a Christian, trust in him. There is salvation in no other name and in no other means. Trust in him. Believe in him. And if you're a Christian, continue to trust in him. Allow him to work. How do you know that the character of Christ is being formed in you? You begin to see the same combination of traits that you would not normally see in one person. See, if you think you're saved by works, then you'll be bold, but you'll never be humble. You'll be super arrogant. But if you're only aware of your sin, but not aware of forgiveness, You'll be lowly, but you'll never be bold. You'll never be confident. You can never come into God's presence. But when you see our humble king lowering himself for us, exposing our sin, and then dying on a cross for our sin, you know what it does? It makes you bold and humble at the same time. You're humble because you cannot save yourself and your sin deserves eternal death. And you're absolutely bold because Jesus paid it all and you are an adopted child of God and you can come into his presence at any time and make your request known to, before God. It's incredible. You can be humble and bold at the same time. Why? Because you believe. And therefore, you welcome him by believing. You welcome him by praying, asking with confidence for him to work. And you welcome him by asking for forgiveness so that you can forgive others. Friends, let's welcome him today. Not just the bits that we like, excusing the parts that we don't like, not just responding to the Jesus of our own making or the parts that we like to cherry pick, but the compassionate God who lowers himself, the righteous God who confronts and exposes our sin, and the gracious God who lays down his life so that we could be forgiven of our sin and made new.
That's the Jesus we worship. Let's welcome him. We have an opportunity now to welcome him and to allow him to do his work in us. Let nothing stop you. Let's pray together that we would. Father, we thank you that you lowered yourself for us and that in doing so, you did not excuse our sin or evil or injustice in the world. You called it for what it truly is. And then you laid down your life for us, Jesus. We marvel at who you are and what you've done. And so in this moment, we ask for the grace to welcome you into our hearts. For those that don't yet know you, I pray that right now they would believe that they would trust in Jesus. Just saying from their heart, Jesus, save me. I can't save myself. I believe you died on a cross for my sins. I believe you rose again to give me everlasting life. And I pray for us as a church, I pray that we would know that we can come in to and enjoy your presence because you lowered yourself to our level. And I pray that you would enable us to receive your correction and your conviction. I pray that you would remove whatever needs to be removed in our hearts, expose whatever needs to be exposed in our, our hearts. May we not hide from you. Knowing that when you convict us of our sin, it's because you're leading us to the cross. where you've promised that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I pray that we'd welcome you into our hearts as we respond now in Jesus' name.